Okay, so recording. No Joel, but you know, the idea got in my head that I wanted to do a podcast this week, even if it's not a real one. And I figured since far fewer people follow me on Tumblr than do here, but if you want to do that, it's at fastkarate.tumblr.com, uh, I would read off my game of the year list. But if you had heard that or read it, then hearing it will probably be pretty boring. So, this is now a DJ Dave episode, which the masses have been clamoring for. And by masses, I mean three people. But it's been several years since there's been a DJ Dave. So, uh, just a little, little bit of housekeeping. First off, want to thank Wayne for buying the shirt. Thank Dan, who I thought I thanked, but maybe not. Um, and, you know, shirts are doing okay. They're getting sold, which is nice. Uh, give me a second. I'll bring up uh, how many are left. Fewer than you'd think, except for uh, smalls. So that we got 13 smalls, 9 extra larges, Eight extra extra large, two XL, uh, and three triple XL. Medium gone, large also gone. So if you're still looking to pick one up, you're I'm not gonna say running out of time because it's taken like three years to get to this point. But I'm happy to be at a place where there's less than 50 shirts left and they can all fit semi comfortably into one small bin underneath my bed instead of five giant boxes that's in the corner of my minuscule studio apartment. So thanks to everyone who's bought one over the years. Uh, and thanks to Wayne who bought one recently. Otherwise, Grouts and I started playing Final Fantasy XIV. Some of our old WoW buddies are already jumping on. Don't know if it's going to go anywhere, but if you want to play along, we got a link shell over on uh, Cactuar, Cactuar hey, which you can... I. I don't know how you join them. <laughs> so you can just ask me. My character name is Poot. Last name is Aleus. A-L-E-U-S, which doesn't mean anything. Uh, it's just the first thing that popped into my head because I never had to think about before what Poot's last name would be. Um, so you can message me, or I don't know if it matters, but the name of the link shell is the Kung Fu Scientist. So I don't know if you can look it up by that, but just about everybody who's currently in the link shell can invite you to the link shell, so feel free to come along. Um, what else? Gratz and I have been playing a lot of Descent, the board game, second edition, which we've had for a while, and I made like a blog post about it a long time ago, uh, but now's the time when we're really officially gotten into it, and it's pretty fun, even though she is whipping my ass. I think our current rankings are uh, her three, me one, not including the intro quest, which is like a gimme for the heroes who I'm playing. But it's pretty neat. You know, it's like a dungeon crawling game, except it's adversarial. And the DM is actually trying to kill you and is, you know, considered a full player with all the rights and privileges accordant. Having so much fun with it that <laughs> I bought just about everything that is available for that, which is like, I mean, it's only, it's a couple hundred bucks, which is not something I usually spend on plastic models or haven't since I've been a teenager. 
especially since some of it's straight up just like here buy one of these models for ten dollars and we've got some like nominal gameplay mechanics that come with it uh, but you know I was feeling flush after cleaning out the storage locker which means we're saving 70 bucks a month on top of all these video games I can sell for as many as four dollars a pop so I you know, gave myself a little treat. And now the house has a surfeit of plastic models and cardboard tokens. And I don't, I don't know where to put any of them because I live in New York. But maybe I can put them, maybe I can put them in the place that used to hold all the DVDs out of which I took all the case art and just threw away the cases because I was like, Raw, I hate physical media, but I'm so sentimental that I can't bear the thought of throwing away the case to like Onimusha 4. Uh, so my compromise was to take out all the art, ditch the cases, and then dream of a day where I live in a, an apartment large enough to display media. Or maybe by then I'll just get over this dumb idea that you should actually care about things like that. I don't know, thinking about ways to do the podcast on weeks Joel is busy. Maybe interview people who have made video games. That's an idea, obviously. Fairly small people who have made video games, but, you know, there's a place for that. So, that's something I've been thinking about, not too seriously, but, I don't know. Just thinking about ways to keep putting stuff out there. So the podcast lays fallow less often. Uh, but anyway, that's it. So without further ado, allow me to read you my essays on Game of the Year and play some music for you. Let us begin. Game of the Butts 2013, colon, DJ Dave edition. Number 10 is Resogun. Resogun almost feels like a little bit of history repeating, coming from the same people who made the extraordinary Super Stardust HD in the lean year after the PS3 launch. The game retains all of Super Stardust HD's frantic pacing without any of its sometimes frustrating randomness. Your singular objective is save the last humans. Enemy waves start out manageable, but quickly become overwhelming, survivable only through quick reflexes and instinct. Conscious thought is not a requirement for Resogun. Your enemies are legion, but your ship is equipped with scads of super moves. A speed boost for dashing through formations, a giant laser for blowing everything up, and a smart bomb for the moments when things really get hectic. Though, the true pros hold on to their bombs for extra points at the end of the level. It'd be nice if Frazzlegun had more levels, there's only five, and more ships, there's only three. But, cont content light as it is, it's still a thrilling score-based shooter, and the absolute best game in the PS4 launch lineup. It also makes excellent use of the PS4's best feature, an in-controller speaker, through which a dispassionate robot voice reminds you when your overdrive is ready and chastises you when your lollygagging lets the aliens escape with a captive human. Resogun can't, on its lonesome, make up for the absolute dearth of quality games on the PS4 launch, but it at least gives the high score seekers something to do until the big games of 2014. It's kind of tough to pick a song from shooters because shooters are often so quick that you barely have time to think about gameplay, much less the soundtrack. The theme song to Resogun's first level, Asis, does a great job of showing you how games like this are rhythm games even when they are not rhythm games. The pounding beats mimic your personal rhythm of dashing, shooting, and saving. Married with the sound of laser beams and the robotic announcer giving second-by-second -second updates on your status, Resogun and its soundtrack create an oral panoply so impressive that, even through the chaos, you can't help but take note of it.
Number nine is Etrian Odyssey 4. If you told 10-year-old me that we received two games about first-person dungeon crawling and player-drawn maps in the same year, I'd have laughed in your face and then gone back to playing the one Final Fantasy game available in America. Both Etrian Odyssey and Etrian Odyssey Millennium Girl came out in 2013, and both are outstanding, but Millennium Girl is a remake and necessarily constrained by the mechanics of the original, while 4 is a great expansion of the series and a perfect realization of the dungeon crawling form. Mechanics are dense but tight, and easily understood through use. The game doesn't bog itself down with tutorials. Instead, it diegetically delivers hints to its most obscure systems through optional dialogue with tavern patrons, experienced adventurers sharing their knowledge with the up-and-coming player, sometimes at a price. It is shockingly difficult by today's standards. Monsters on a new level always feel just a little too hard. But its difficulty is encouraging, not punitive, and it doles out meta upgrades of airship parts, subclasses, and party-wide skill boosts with a perfectly paced IV drip. Initially, the game's decision to split dungeons out into separate areas feels very unetrian, but the result is an enormous sampler platter of sub-dungeons that act like mini-puzzles. Ice cabins where topography changes once you've lit a bonfire, or a maze of fiery spikes that must be extinguished with ice stakes harvested from gathering points. This game is the best the series has ever been. If you're fresh to Etrian Odyssey, the only reason not to start with 4 is that its fantastic pacing and beautiful mechanics may ruin you for the older games. If there's any song in Etrian Odyssey that's infinitely listable, and there's probably many given that it's by video game legend Yuzo Koshiro, it's Misty Ravine, whose gently strummed shamisens inspire a piece in the player so sublime that it's always a little disappointing to lose it when a random battle occurs and you have to suffer through the onerous burden of listening to the otherwise completely excellent and never tiresome battle theme. But don't despair. Once you're done with the fight, Misty Ravine will be right there waiting for you after the results screen. probably a misnomer to refer to most strategy games as such, because most strategy RPGs require precious little strategy. Tactics, really. 
besides advancing your entire team in an ironclad block across the battlefield a few squares at a time. Still, barring the few games whose consequences are truly actually dire, the best games have a way of convincing you that the stakes are atmospheric, even when things are actually pretty much fine. This is Fire Emblem's forte. Regardless of the simplicity of its tactics, with their few hit points and the game's notorious permadeath system, the end of a character's fighting career seems constantly on the line, even if it's really not. In the brief pause between the start of an attack and its conclusion, Fire Emblem knows how to make your heart skip a beat. What Fire Emblem does best is make you care, and it does so by giving your characters copious dialogue and melodramatic, overwritten, silly personalities. It makes you care by handing you the ability to pair characters off and marry them to your heart's content. Fire Emblem is not just a strategy RPG, but also has its own built-in fanfiction production studio. If you don't fall in love with the Brutus Lady Knight, or the Effete Archer, or the Brash Wyvern Rider, and if you don't spend hours obsessing over finding them the perfect mate, then you're a more stoic man than I. The broad-stroke personalities of Fire Emblem characters do much to endear you to them, as does the game's well-refined sense of humor, something few games these days could claim in a back-of-the-box bullet point. You can say that the game is fairly easy and therefore the peril of permadeath is an imagined one, but the thing about video games is they're all fake anyway, so claiming the emotions one wrings out of you are artificial because the peril is artificial seems like an unsound thesis. When your Pegasus Knight is one hit away from dying, and an enemy archer has her in his sights, it doesn't really matter that the end run around permadeath is a reset button. You want that pony to live. Sometimes you miss out on portable game music because you're playing it on your commute and don't want to bother people. Sometimes you miss out because you can't decide which of your knights you want to kiss which of your archers. Assault Galvanized does a pretty good job of summing up the super tense moments of extreme, but actually kind of simple, strategy you do in Fire Emblem before you get back to deciding who's going to make babies with whom. seven is Gone Home. I guess we're finally at the point where people my age are making big time video games, and that means we get a game with licensed Riot Girl music. Not that I ever claim objectivity when talking about any piece of art, but I especially can't with Gone Home. There's too much of me in it. Parents who just don't understand, VH tapes with three movies dubbed onto them, cheat seats for Street Fighter codes, and punk mixtapes with excruciatingly detailed track lists written on the case. Shit, man. Gone Home was my life. But it's also not my life, because I have never been, and probably will never be, a teenage lesbian. That being said, I remember what it was like to feel ostracized and like nobody loved you, and you better believe I blasted Brattenbeel at max volume in my room. The twist ending barely warrants the term, and its creepy atmosphere is fun, but really just window dressing. The story is melodramatic almost to a fault, but show me a person who doesn't understand melodrama, and I'll show you a person who's never been a teenager. Aside from the focus on the main character's sister and her coming out, Gone Home touches on a lot of social issues, including child abuse, in remarkably sympathetic ways. 
The mood throughout is intensely personal, which ties in well to the voyeuristic way you play it. Something feels vaguely wrong about turning over and rooting through these artifacts that describe people's pain in such detailed ways. There's probably more than a little of the developer's truth behind the fiction of Gone Home. What's magical about it is they've made a game that is not at all about my life, and yet is entirely about me. Well, I could have gone with Heavens to Betsy, the predecessor to Sleater Kinney, who appears on this soundtrack, but you've heard me talk about them enough on this podcast, on Twitter, and on Tumblr, and on anywhere else that lets me write words. Instead, let's go with the newcomer, the youngins, whose music stood in for Gone Home's in-universe band, Girl Scout, who put out an album in 2013 that easily sounds like it could have come from 1996. Six is The Legend of Zelda A Link Between Worlds. When was the last great Zelda game? I have no idea. But it certainly wasn't Skyward Sword with its onerous pre-dungeons, and it certainly wasn't Twilight's Princess with its ridiculous owl fetch quest. That's not even mentioning both games' hours-long tutorials and ceaseless, ultra-boring dialogue. Those games were stinkers. They weren't even worth the hours you put into them. So that this game goes so far beyond good and past great and into amazing was a bit of a shock for my lowered expectations. Sure, they cheated a little by making a sequel to one of the best games in the series, but A Link Between Worlds is the most fun I've had with Zelda probably since I was a kid. It's fast, they put a sword in your hand within the first five minutes, it is fluid, and it knows when to shut up, where when is most of the time. The dungeons are short enough that they don't overstay their welcome, overland exploration feels like a real world instead of Skyward Sword's disconnected zones of anti-enjoyment. And even its get a hundred of these yawns side quest feels like a mission, not a chore, given the rapidity with which these adorable little hermit crab looking things supercharge your bombs, your fire staff, or whatever else you'd like. And that's not even mentioning how cute it is when the crabby geegaws chirp along with the victory music, or when they frantically resist you trying to pull them off the walls. It is a bit too easy. I only died once. And it's comparatively short for a Zelda game. But its brevity is only relative to the other 40 plus hour Zelda slogs. The 15-ish hours it took for me to beat it, having done most of the side quests, felt just about right. Link Between Worlds is good enough to convince you that they took the sadistic ogres who have been cranking out mediocre Zelda for the past 10 years and locked them into a deep, dank dungeon where they couldn't put their grubby, tutorial-loving mitts all over this one. If Link Between Worlds is an indication of the series' future, I think I'm ready to say I like Zelda again. And I hope those miserable ogres who gave us Twilight Princess and Skyward Sword stay locked in their cages forever. The low rule theme from Link Between Worlds is so super peppy and so high fidelity that it might make you forget that the Link to the Past Dark World theme was just as upbeat, it simply didn't have the real instruments or sufficient technology to replicate real instruments to back it up. Both versions are absolutely charming, 
and give you this really thrilling feeling like you're actually embarking on an adventure every time you step into the dark world. Even listening to it for an hour at a time while scouring for little connectable snares or whatever, I never got bored. Number five is Rogue Legacy. Rogue Legacy operates on a very simple presence. It's Symphony of the Night, but also a roguelike. It's a castle exploring game where you get double jumps and life drains, where you swing your sword at slimes and flying wizards. But instead of requiring knowledge of post-sign identification and other Byzantine systems, as many roguelikes do, Rogue Legacy is a randomly generated platforming and bullet hell simulator, and sometimes both at the same time. It's less about prior knowledge and more about Twitch timing. Its bullet spreads are often on par with a cave shooter's, and usually just about as instantly fatal. More often than not, death comes in cavernous rooms where characters must double jump and air dash over a pit of spikes while also evading homing fireballs and icicle spread shots. The legacy bit is the conceit that when your current character dies, it's their scion that picks up the torch. You're given a choice of three characters of different classes each time you start a new run. There are mages and knights and other usual things. There are also ninjas with super damage and miners that have shit for stats, but gain increased gold pickups and a sweet helmet lantern when you upgrade them. Beyond that, all characters have traits. Some are giants, some are tiny, some have dementia, some see illusionary monsters that can't hurt them, but whose attacks seem all too real. Some have photographic memory, and so can see monster locations on the mini-map. Some just fart a lot. Occasionally you'll have nothing but bad choices, but playing a character with vertigo, which forces you to play a whole run upside down, requires at least one go, because it is so ridiculously unfair. And things are allowed to be ridiculously unfair in Rogue Legacy, because they're only ridiculously unfair for five minutes before you die and get to try something else. What makes games like Rogue Legacy great is that they require a minuscule time investment. We're all getting older, so having a game with a natural stopping point every 15 minutes is a godsend. Any character death is the perfect time to put down the controller, but if you put down the controller, you won't get to use all the upgrades you unlocked with the gold you carried out of the castle on your character's corpse. Runs aren't necessarily about beating the game or even beating a boss. When you're almost out of health, but you're sitting on nearly a thousand gold, the thought of collecting just one more chest and having enough money to unlock an MP upgrade or an increased crit chance keeps you fighting until the very last second. Rogue Legacy is a game you can stop playing at any time, and yet it is tremendously difficult to actually do so, because it is tremendously easy to justify another 15 minute long life to see how well your gigantic Alzheimer-ridden dragon who just unlocked a cape of vampirism fares. Even though this game has a song with Poot in the title, and even though most of the tracks are pretty fantastic, I gotta give it to Narwhal, the song that plays in the Maya. If I remembered more about what I learned in band practice and music class, I'd use the technical term for when the drum skips the fourth beat in the measure. Since I've long since forgotten all functional words for music, I'll just call it awesome.
number four is Ace Attorney Dual Destiny. One of the dudes you play at in this game has some special power that lets him read people's physical tells and see if they're lying. I don't know how he does it, I didn't play the last game. Well, clearly, say the developers, we can't let him do it in the courtroom or make the perpetrator too obvious. How do we stop him from using his power? The answer? Attack him with a hawk. The hawk is commanded by a prosecutor who is also a prisoner, who attends court clapped in irons. He seems to... He seems to only wear these manacles so that he can snap them in half when the climax of the trial approaches. He also speaks in archaic British, I guess, if that's your fancy. Joining the playable cast of Apollo and Phoenix is Athena. I could probably write this whole game of the year just about her, but you're not here to read a love letter. Athena is spunky, but mostly not in that annoying way that anime does spunky. Her gimmick is she can read people's emotions, which almost translates to her giving them a Voight comp exam in the middle of the trial. It's a little cuter than the way Blade Runner does it. Really, it's not like Blade Runner at all. The move to 3D graphics gives the animators room to soar. Transitions between poses are ultra-fluid. Each lawyer has a better fist-slamming the bench animation than the last. Simon Black calls uproarious chuckles, a particular favorite. And then there's the apoplexy of the witness stand. Astronauts soar into space, or try their best to do so. And one painfully, obviously evil character, when put on the ropes, pulls out a blackboard and frantically illustrates points like everyone is wrong but me. It's got some of the usual Phoenix Wright foibles. The investigation sections still go on too long, and there's a point at every trial where they spend five minutes talking about a solution you've already discovered, and they end the conversation by literally saying the solution out loud when they could have at least let you pick it from a menu. A game has to be pretty clever to be this funny, so it would be nice if they acted like their players were clever too, and held their hands a little less. There's limited sense in explaining why something's funny. I've wasted a couple hundred words trying, but really there's nothing to do with play it and see. But I do wonder, where are all the other funny video games? There are essentially none, though certainly plenty of games try and fail. So either the creators of Phoenix Wright have stolen a phylactery filled with the last soul of wit, previously guarded by a horrible ogre, or everyone else on the planet trying to make a funny game is phenomenally lazy. Honestly, the fantasy explanation is easier to swallow. Don't get me wrong. Simon Blackwell's song is in the forerunning just for its twangy string startup that might as well have had a dude go, yo! But I figured that Trianodicy already covered the traditional Japanese instrument section, so I'd give it to what really makes sense as the best song in the Phoenix Wright game. The song they play when you've got the opposition on the ropes and the objections are flowing like sweet, sweet wine. Pursuit is this game's jam, and Ace Attorney 5 uses it both liberally and judiciously. Pun.
number three is Metal Gear Rising. In my heart, this slot was for Wonderful 101. In another universe, it might have been. Wonderful 101 is a fantastic example of Kamiya and Top Form. It is excellent. You should buy it. Both games represent the near pinnacle of character action, and we should count our blessings that we got two so excellent games in the same year. Both have tons of replayability with giant shops full of optional items and skills to purchase and big levels with lots of secrets for the taking. Rising is probably a little more replayable. It's only about six to eight hours long and it focuses almost entirely on the fighting. There are stealth sections you can decide to tiptoe around or murder your way through. Where Wonderful 101 is closer to 15 to 20 hours and suffused with the usual Kamiya style minigames. Both are excellent. Both are platinum games. But in creating this list, I decided to keep the genres as diverse as I could, even at the cost of some overwhelming favorites. Where Wonderful 101 lacks a fair tutorial, good luck learning even its mid-level mechanics without a YouTube guide, Rising builds its tutorial into the game, and teaches its player passively by ramping up the difficulty of enemy encounters a bit at a time. First three cyborgs with machetes, then three cyborgs with machetes and one providing cover fire, and so on. Eventually, Raiden is carving a path through dropkicking gorilla bots while an army of robot panthers throw superheated knives from the periphery of the battle. And he's doing it without a pop-up prompt, ensuring they understand the many and various uses of the play. And he's doing it without a pop-up prompt, ensuring the player understands the many and various uses of the square button. Wonderful 101 doesn't bother to tell you about the existence of a block, a crucial maneuver you can't even do until you buy it from a store. Conversely, most contemporary games teach you how to do everything by freezing the game and splashing an enormous tutorial pop-up across the screen. Rising cleaves into that rarely trod middle ground. It teaches you what to do by having you do it yourself instead of telling you how to do it. And it makes you feel like a badass while you do. It makes you feel cool every time you parry a robot dog's chainsaw swipe and every time you deflect bullets just by sprinting around with the run button held down. By the time you're fighting against a dude with an exploding sword in a desert wasteland, you no longer care that every boss battle is accompanied by this new metal, metalcore, whatever core crap music, because that metalcore crap actually sounds kind of awesome too, once you get used to it. After you've learned about parries and ninja running to deflect bullets, Rising doesn't offer a lot in the way of tutorials. Why should it? You're already a mega badass ninja guy. Whether they be from a human cyborg or a bipedal gecko bot, most enemy attacks can be parried, and all enemies have some variation of health replenishing cyber spine. Your objective, always, is to kill the enemy and get that spine. How you do it is up to you. It can be with kicks and sword slashes, it can be with a staff made of tiny robot arms, it can be while you're wearing a poncho and a sombrero, and it can be after you've listened to 15 minutes of Codex... And it can be after you've listened to 15 minutes of Codex conversations about Geronimo, if you like because this is still a Metal Gear game. Rising is not easy, but it's not too hard either. Learning how to parry is pretty simple, just push forward into an enemy's attack, but it's more difficult to figure out the proper timing, which actually gives you frame advantage over an enemy instead of just neutralizing their damage. Rising is nothing like Metal Gear. It is very fast, it is very aggressive, and it's extraordinarily cruel. You will have consumed a hundred plus electric blue enemy spines like so many juice boxes by the time the game is over. Yet, it is entirely like Metal Gear. It sells you hard on this is awesome as you tear spines out of bodies while providing enough context of this is kind of not awesome to differentiate it from gore porn games like God of War. It's a story about how one maintains their humanity even as they disassemble hundreds of cyborg bodies piece by piece. It spews out scenery-chewing villains that are so silly you can't take them seriously, yet while they name-check historical events and even reference YouTube, you sit and think, why is this game about fart jokes and cutting people into 500 pieces? the only video game actually bothering to talk about how gross PMCs are. 
and you fight an iron golem man who shoots meteors at you. It's crazy how bad the soundtrack to Metal Gear Rising is. I, I've spent a lot of time talking about it already. Yeah, when you're in the moment, and Explosive Sword Man is kicking your ass, and you're out of healing pace, and it's late, and you've been playing the game all day, and you're kind of delirious about it, the song actually gets you sort of psyched. It's weird. Then you develop a super positive association with Jetstream Sam's boss fight, the only thing I know, to the point where you're listening to it on the way to get coffee in the morning, and you make this irremovable attachment between it and the ogre fight scene you're writing in your dumb fantasy book until the song might as well just be the theme song for your ogre fight scene, and now it's the only thing you can think about when you think of it, and forget Metal Gear Rising already, just give me some ogres. Number two is Papers, Please. You're an agent at a border crossing in a fictitious Soviet bloc kind of country. It starts simple. You check passports, make sure the expiration date and issuing city are good, then approve or deny the applicant. You do your work, collect your pay, go home to allocate your money for your family's food, heat, and rent. It ramps up immediately. People with foreign passports need to provide notarized entrance permits stating the purpose of their visit. Then they need to provide work permits. Then the entrance permit changes and the old style one is no longer good, but people will still try to use them and you have to reject them. Then people will start forging documents, so you have to confirm that they're real. The game space is purposefully small. You have a tiny little desk on which you shuffle around half a dozen papers at a time. And you're criminally rushed because your pay is meager and the metagame of providing for your family is exacting. There are cash penalties if you make mistakes, and one night without heat means people get sick. Then you have to start paying for medicine on top of your other bills. When you work at full steam, you make mistakes constantly. What's more, sometimes NPCs make mistakes too. They say they're coming for work, but their papers say travel. That means you have to take another step and interrogate them so they can correct themselves. You say aloud, idiot, or stop wasting my time, and quickly approve or deny them, then move on to the next. There is always a next, and a next, and a next after that, a line that stretches off into infinity and is only interrupted by the end-of-day bell or a terrorist attack, which are sometimes your fault if you let someone through without checking them for contraband. The popular thing to do when talking about Papers, Please is to say it's not fun, and then to question if video games need to be fun. I guess that depends on your definition of fun. The game is certainly funny. Sometimes, like it's Serial Forge who comes back every day with papers that are literally cartoonishly bad. My teens were filled with games like Resident Evil. Survival horror keeps you in varying degrees of tension by having enemies that absorb too much damage and deal too much damage for your limited supplies. To me, that was pretty fun. 
Papers, Please is fun in the same sense. I don't think there's a game that's made me more stressed in my life. The pressure to be fast but perfect is ever-present, and no better illustrated than my purchasable keyboard shortcuts that improve your workflow, but at the cost of 10 credits your family desperately needs. Is being able to hit spacebar to open your investigation panel worth a day without food? Quicker processing will pay for itself in the long run, but right now wife is sick, uncle is hungry, and the line still stretches on and on and on. You badly want to succeed, but even if you accept bribes, even if you cheat, the margins are razor thin. Papers, Please makes the expected statements about inefficient bureaucracy and invasion of privacy, but also, oddly, evokes sympathy for an unexpected party, the TSA agent. The game places you in the shoes of a border agent whose only choice is to enforce the rules or starve. There is no other work available to him. You should be grateful for the job you have, say the inspectors who check on his progress. Sadly, this fiction they sell to the working class, that they should be happy they have a terrible job because the alternative is no job, sounds more like present-day America than it does Cold War-era USSR. There's not much music in Papers, Please, just the constant sound of the loudspeaker telling the line to move up. So the game basically made the choice for me. It's a theme off the title screen. Good thing it's a fantastic song. It's evocative of all that those it's evocative of all those bleak Soviet anthems we're used to seeing on TV and in Rocky IV, but it's not atonal. It's bleak, but it's actually sort of catchy, which is weird. But even in being catchy, it's like this ceaseless warning that you're about to enter a world of misery. Yet somehow there's reason to be excited about it and enjoy it. Dragon's Crown. <laughs> Oops. Should this have been The Last of Us? Maybe. Because there are a few games that have an opening as good as The Last of Us, or an ending for that matter. There are a few games I considered writing an essay about for Jay's upcoming seminar slash art installation on video games. In the end, I went with Silent Hill for that, but I appreciate The Last of Us for similar reasons. Both games exemplify a manner of storytelling that video games have an automatic knack for. They force you to empathize with a despicable protagonist because you spent 15 hours playing the game in their shoes. Of course they're the good guy, they're the playable character. Less of Us Sending is so overwhelming because its characters act in unspeakably wrong ways, but their characterization is such that you can imagine literally no other choice for them. So if you're talking about, shit, this game kind of made me cry a little, then The Last of Us is Fast Karate's Game of the Year. But if you're talking about shit, video games used to be these insanely fun things that you'd pour hours into for no reason other than the feedback of pushing buttons was so goddamn magnificent, then Dragon's Crown is Fast Karate's Game of the Year. Imagine a universe where they kept making beat-em-ups, like Final Fight and Dungeons & Dragons Shadows over Mistara. Dragon's Crown is the natural evolution of that universe. 
as if there were never a time when arcades started to slack and where people wanted something from their video games other than to beat people up with Donatello and eat pizza. Dragon's Crown is a left-to-right game where you blow up orcs with magic spells across levels that are only 15 minutes long, but after the level you return to a sound... But after the level, you return to town and spend your gold on potions and equipment and your experience on a host of super diverse and your experience on a host of super diverse talent trees. Your character, be it knight or dwarf or elf or wizard, starts out with the same simple combo and a special move, an arrow shot or an AoE ground pound. They branch into equipping poison daggers, shooting five arrows at a time, buffing their allies, attack strength with a shield wall, and literally carpet bombing enemies during their air dives. The mark of a great level up system is never giving you quite enough points to let you do everything you want, but always leaving the next little boost right around the corner. The mantra of Dragon's Crown may as well be just one more level, and the levels are so short and so jam-packed with ship defense against Krakens, rideable fire-breathing dinosaurs and saber-toothed tigers, the Amazon guides mounts with her vagina, and battles against room-filling chimeras and other mythic beasts that they all but beg you to play them and replay them. And replay them you will, because the game requires it. In later stages, bosses must be defeated on a strict time limit, or the party only barely escapes with their lives. This is a sneaky trick to enhance replayability through repeat content. It's also a super cool way to encourage you to get stronger, to get better, and to figure out how to play your character. You've lost to the fire-breathing demon Kate two times. There will not be a third. If Dragon's Crown were an intensely pretty beat-em-up and that's all, maybe it'd be easier to pass up. This is a game that takes the manner and aesthetics of a beat-em-up and pairs them with a combat system that rivals fighting games. The Sorceress, that doleful, doe-eyed blob, is a crowd control machine who summons skeleton allies from the dead and can lock down even bosses with her ice walls. The elf can air juggle enemies until the end of time by interweaving jump kicks, charge shots, and air dashes. She can also set an entire room ablaze by shooting five hours at a time, and when done out of a dash, she looks so cool doing it that it is unreal. It is unfair that things should feel this good and look this awesome. It is almost cruel to every other video game. Since I can't find a gif of it, Google the figurine of the elf and imagine the whip turn that led her into a pose like that. Then imagine the half dozen poison arrows she just shot through a rock golem. Vanillaware games are always beautiful, but Dragon's Crown is in a league of its own. Characters are wholly 2D with dozens of unique animations that chain together fluidly and without pause. Look at what the elf is doing and tell me it's not poetry. The game unabashedly cribs inspiration from Renaissance paintings of Henry VIII and that girl you recognize because her portrait was a plot point in an episode of The Borgias starring Jeremy Irons. There's references to Walt Disney and Greek statuary and Indiana Jones. It seals whole cloth the art of 600 years and mashes it together into this sort of ultimate fantasy pastiche. But it's not flawless, without even factoring in the huge-tittied sorceress who's too stupid to keep her hat on while she's casting fireballs. There are some pretty weird depictions of women, like the chain nymph in the see-through dress, who helpfully guides you to your objective while squirming and flinching away from your mouse clicks, or the wounded warrior monk who's chosen to die spread-eagled and squirms and flinches away from your mouse clicks. This is somewhat mitigated by the hyper-proficient characters, the elf's ability to shoot five consecutive charge shots in between air dashes, the Amazon's move that turns him into the living buzzsaw. Still, there's a weird fetishization of the female character's weakness that the male characters do not share. Admittedly, fantasy as a genre loves chainmail bikinis and putting princesses in manacles, but precedent is fairly thin excuse if it counts for one at all. Playing Dragon's Crown means accepting that you're being given uh, maybe too much insight into one dude's extremely specific paraphilias. You are essentially playing George Kamatani's homemade quasi-porn. If it weren't for the game's almost singular obsession with putting female NPCs in dire peril, that is also weirdly sexual, there'd be less to complain about. 
At least what's on display here is phenomenally less gross than games like God of War, where you play a protagonist who crushes shackled women beneath water wheels to solve puzzles. And we take comfort that some of the porn is food porn. You've never seen a more beautiful spread of killer rabbit, minotaur brain, and lobster tail. Your enjoyment of Dragon's Count may be contingent on having a best friend to play it with. It so happens that many of my favorite games growing up were the kind of games that required a best friend to play them with. This is the logical extension of long weekends spent playing Streets of Rage 2, trekking out to the arcade in the middle of the night to co-op giggling. Dragon's Crown was a game I was ready to write off. I wasn't even going to buy it, they just happened to send it to me. And maybe my lowered expectations have something to do with my praise. But maybe the hundred plus hours we put into this game in the scant few weeks... But maybe the hundred plus hours we put into this game in the scant few weeks has something to do with it too. The Last of Us brought me to tears. Dragon's Crown consumed my heart. We played through the majority of The Last of Us in a 12-hour jam sesh because we could not put it down. We brought our PS3 to an anime convention because Dragon's Crown turned us into itinerant preachers to the congregation of our friends and our dogma was the Amazon's badonkadonk. That's why Dragon's Crown is Fast Karate's Game of the Year. But you should play Last of Us too. Hitoshi Sakimoto, the guy you might recognize because he made some of the best game soundtracks of all time, like Final Fantasy Tactics and Valkyria Chronicles, sure knows how to make a song that gets you pumped up when you're fighting a giant dragon. Too bad I can't find it anywhere on the internet. You would not believe how hard, impossible really, it is to find the final boss's theme for this game. It does not seem to exist in any form outside the game itself, which is too bad because it's a killer. And instead, please accept the theme of another boss battle where you fight the killer rabbit from Monty Python, whose most powerful attack is a lethal dose of Bayer Aspirin Kung Fu. This concludes Game of the Butts 2013 colon DJ Dave edition, but it would be remiss not to send you out with one more thing. Bioshock had the distinction of being the game I'd completely forgot to think about even mentioning during Game of the Year. Consider that resolved. Its version of God Only Knows by the Beach Boys is so stunning and so feature-perfect that you can't help but mistrust your memory for a second. Maybe the Beach Boys took the song from some old-timey spiritual or something? But in truth, it's just an excellent cover of an excellent song, and an excellent way to close out this podcast. With this, Game of the Butts 2013 is officially over. Thanks for listening. 
should ever leave me Though life would still go on Believe me The world could show nothing to me So what good would living do me? God only knows what I'd be without you
also this song because it makes me super emoji.